everybody. I'm Nicole. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah. And together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today it's mailbag time. Mailbag, mailbag, it's time for a mailbag. And that's because you don't get a fun flippers fact song later. Plus a whale tale from a unique point of view. Ooh, fun. So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. I'm very excited. I'm very excited about today's mailbag because we're always excited about a mailbag. Mm-hmm. Mailbags are great. But in particular, round of applause. You can't see it because podcasts are an audio medium, but I am giving an actual circular applause for all of the folks on so many different platforms who mm-hmm. submitted questions to us for this mailbag. When we were collecting the questions, we had to look actually everywhere that we talk to you which is really fun so thanks audience thanks listeners and instagrammers and i all all the people who support whale tales in all the ways for not just your awesome questions which we will get to but for being there and for you know it's sometimes sometimes it's hard to know what's on the other side of the void called the internet and for this episode, we learned you are there, and that's great, and we love you, so thank you. <laughs> we are going to dive right into our first question. This one comes to us via email, and it comes from Lori. So Lori says, I was reading an article about the self-domestication of African elephants. Uh, apparently, only humans and bonobos have been in this category of self-domestication before. And I was wondering if you could explain, one, what self-domestication is exactly? And two, have any whale species possibly self-domesticated? Anyway, keep up the great work. You guys are awesome. Lori, you're awesome. Thank you. I had never heard the term self-domestication before reading this email. Had you guys? No. Uh, I understood the concept, but I maybe hadn't heard of it referred to specifically as self-domestication. Yeah. 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 Like I, the, the words I yes. understood yeah. um, as a scientific theory is like, huh? So that was the first of many fun rabbit holes. Also, side note and spoiler for the rest of this episode, every single one of these questions... <laughs> was a rabbit hole and it was awesome and i think just speaking for myself and then i'll be interested what you two say um with all of our mailbags we love every single question we get and it is also rare for us to have a mailbag episode where we didn't know at least Mm -hmm. part of the answer to one or two of the questions in that mailbag before recording Never, ever have we had a mailbag episode where we knew the answer to every question, because you all ask amazing questions. Yeah, that would be absurd. Yep. And we are not perfect or or all-knowing, because that's impossible. But I would say this was the first mailbag where it felt like there were more questions that I knew zero about, as opposed to, I know at least the beginnings of that. Yeah. You guys really challenged cool. us this month. Yes. And that's, we love it. Yeah, that's the go. It's thank you for the challenge. Okay, so to answer Lori's first part of the question, what is self-domestication? 
self-domestication is a scientific hypothesis that suggests that similar to the, the domestication of sort of what, what in Western society we would consider typical-ish household pets like cats and dogs, domesticated from wild dogs and wild cats over lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of centuries of generations, possibly thousands of years in some cases, um, that that's domestication. Self-domestication is when this process happens through the artificial selection amongst members of a species, as said in Laurie's email, humans and bonobos, and now some evidence that this is happening in elephants. And because of the sexual selection amongst members of that species, selecting for more, quote unquote, domestic traits, the species as a whole is self-domesticating. So in this way, during the process of hominization, for example, a preference, this is a theory, total theory, <laughs> a preference for individuals with collaborative or social behavior would have been shown to be optimal and a benefit to the group and appealing to mates of the hominization. Like when we were going from, oh, I'm not going to get into all of the debates about how homo sapiens evolved, but the... <laughs> as homo sapiens were evolving. And so that sort of trait of docileness, ability with language, emotional intelligence would have been enhanced during the process of artificial selection or sexual selection, actually. And that's how we evolved to be who we are. That is a incredible oversimplification of a really complicated theory that, as mentioned, was quite the rabbit hole. <laughs> really, really fascinating to think of. Uh, it reminded me, again, I have to thank Lori for the trip down memory lane to one of, if not my absolute favorite course I ever took in my many, many, many years of university, which was the evolution of psychology. And it was like psychological evolution. So very, very similar to this, which is why it was fascinating to me that I'd never heard this idea, but the idea of like how memories have evolved and, and all that. And I love, and like bio biology combined with psychology, love the course. This is right up my alley. As for the second part of Laurie's question, could any whale species be part of this group uh, that are self-domesticating? Absolutely no idea. <laughs> <laughs> is the short answer for a long-winded answer to a question. The I, I, the truth is, Laurie and listeners, we simply don't know enough, which is, I mean, often our answer for everything, <laughs> but we simply don't know enough about, oh goodness, like just any of it. Yeah. <laughs> what traits were favorable if there are behavioral traits that are favorable overarchingly within the species uh, depending cetacean to cetacean you name it we don't know enough about it couldn't possibly hazard a guess as to whether yeah. any any <laughs> cetacean species is becoming more domestic yeah and i think not only do we not know if it's happening, I don't know if we know how you, we would tell. Yeah, yeah that's what I was just like, domestic is 
such an anthropomorphic term. Yeah, that too. Yeah. Of just like, what does that mean? Does it mean what we see it as or, or what we projecting onto these species or is it domestic as to them? And what does that mean? Like, yeah. How can you measure domesticity in a migratory animal? That too. Yeah. But just like in general, like they don't, they're not social either. Not all of them. Some of them are, some of them aren't. So how does that work? Like if you're a solitary animal, what does that mean? Yeah. Anyway. And also like, even if they were to be domesticated, like how do you, how does that evolve if you're a solitary animal? Like what does the solitary animal therefore look for in a mate to then therefore become more domesticated? Yeah. Yeah. So complicated. Anyway, so many questions. <laughs> so many questions, but loved the, you know, there's a time and a place for just random theory yeah. development and this is it. So welcome and buckle up. <laughs> Thank you, Laurie. Speaking of which, <laughs> um, I think it was Nicole from Spotify sent us this question, which was fun because you can send us questions on Spotify now. Um <laughs> If baleen whales somehow could vocalize without passing air through their larynx, is it possible whale fetuses vocalize while in utero? The answer is, nobody knows. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. We've also never really done an ultrasound on a baleen whale because, as we've mentioned in our episode that just came out on our Patreon, there's been no baleen whales in captivity and it's pretty much impossible to do an ultrasound on a cetacean not in captivity yeah so because you gotta stay still <laughs> yeah and yeah i don't even know if you had if, they... if you had a solitary pregnant baleen whale and really good acoustic um like hydrophones mm-hmm. maybe you could figure it mm-hmm. out they would need to, and also a perfectly silent ocean around yes, that. Yeah. And like no currents, no noise. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows what kind of frequency this would make? Because, like, would they make, would it be the same? Would it be different? Who knows? Right? Yeah. Like, it's and not going to be necessarily the same as what we expect to hear. Yeah. Like, it seems like it's theoretically possible, but whether it happens yes. or not. Also, I guess because a lot of their vocalization is taught. Or some is, anyways. Some, some is, is. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't yeah. be, like, coming out with a complex male song. No, no, no. But, but yeah. So, that's a very cool question. Yeah. The, like, thing that came to my mind when I was first reading this question was, I remember both of my kids making noise mm. in my uterus while I was pregnant. Clearly not vocalizing, because, as pointed out in the question, like, humans do need air to vocalize yeah Mm -hmm. and there's no air in utero but they that's not the only kind of sound that humans can make (laughs) and we can make sound it's not vocals but we can make sounds without air and both of my pregnancies not just on ultrasounds but like when I was like really really coming close to term you could hear weird gurgly noises now granted whether they were my stomach, <laughs> my other parts of my <laughs> internal organs that were all moving around. Um, but I did, we did hear, I think it was James. Yeah, it was like one of our, one of our first ultrasounds. We did hear James making like weird clicky sounds. 
cats on the ultrasound. Which is just just funny. Oh, yeah. I bones. assumed you were gonna go with hiccups, but Yeah. Oh yeah, also true. Yeah. yeah. Thomas I feel like you feel that more than hear it, but Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Great question and would love to know the answer at some point. Um, okay. Our next question. Oh, man. So good. Uh, our next question comes from Manny, who's six years old. And Manny says, I love whales, sharks, and dolphins. Me too, buddy. Uh, orcas <laughs> are my favorite because they can eat a great white shark. Love Excellent. it. Um, are you going to do an episode on Parasitus Colossus? Such a great question. Such a cool animal. And unfortunately... Probably not because they, um, we just don't know enough for us to do a whole episode. But we do have um, something on our list for Journal Club. Is that right? I didn't see that before. Yes, the yeah. initial paper that did come out is behind a paywall, unfortunately. Otherwise, we already would have done it for our Patreon Journal Club or even in the main feed because this is such a cool discovery. So we're hoping to keep Journal Club f doing free access, but we do have this on our list for maybe one day because, and maybe there'll be another paper soon because who knows now that they've discovered this species, but indeed. Okay. So if you haven't yet heard about um, Parasitus Colossus last year in 2023, um, the, uh, they published a paper about the discovery of a single individual of a new species in the genus um, Parasitus called extinct. Par oh, extinct, species. extinct species. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I maybe didn't Important. quite mention this. Yes. This is a species that lived like 39 to 38 million years ago, somewhere in that ballpark. So yes, extinct species. They've only found a single individual and the remains of this individual are on display at the Natural History Museum of Lima in Peru and mm. um, under the sort of direction of the Univers National University of San Marcos, which is where the main group of paleontologists who found the species. So Parasitus, absolutely ridiculous because they think that Parasitus may have been heavier than a blue whale. Yeah. Not larger than a blue whale, but heavier than a blue whale. About like maybe 20 meters long but weighing somewhere in the ballpark of 85 to 340 tons. Yeah, this was chonky. Chonky. So the reason yeah. there's such a huge range is because it's not a complete skeleton. They also don't know. They only have the skeleton, not the body mass. Chonkiness. Yeah, <laughs> but they have incredibly, incredibly thick and very dense bones. So all of the speculation is that they lived in shallow, slow-moving waters, similar to something like a manatee except way bigger <laughs> 20 way meters long bigger. and maybe over 300 tons um we so, will definitely so throw much whale. some of the like rendered pictures yeah yeah like, i yeah. see them on um, social all the time and they're just they're just the chonkiest absolutely so awesome yeah. yeah gigantic whales so because we probably in the short term won't do a full episode on Parasitus. Let's talk about some cool Parasitus facts. Okay, so the individual that they found, they were able to study the vascular channels, like the, the blood vessels basically that penetrate the bone. And they found that they're really narrow, which indicates a pretty mature animal, but also means these bones are even more dense than they would have thought. And um, that's very interesting. They also are still not entirely sure what they would have eaten because they haven't found a head yet um <laughs> so which is, is my favorite thing about the pictures because like yeah. mm -hmm. 
it had a head. We are quite sure. Um, so, but they have been able to sort of compare it to lots of other more well-known prehistoric whales. And um, so that's sort of how they're able to draw some sketches. And also based on the density of these bones, it's unlikely that they would have been like a deep diving athletic kind of whale. Yes, <laughs> um, very true. Much more manatee shaped. Um, so they were, did a lot of the calculations about how much they weighed based on like the ratio of body mass to weight in um, living species primarily. And as much as this animal did live 40 million years ago, it is definitely impossible for it to have been on land. So um, even like vaguely uh, terrestrial or like um, semi-aquatic. Um, so they, because they haven't found the skeleton or the full skeleton, including the skull, they don't really know what they would have eaten, but the guesses are something more like a grazing lifestyle um, or something similar to bottom or suction feeding, similar to gray whales and beluga whales, uh, because they're, those are also both bottom dwelling and in the case of belugas, especially like relatively shallow living. Um, the main reason that they think it probably wasn't grazing like um, manatees is just because no other cetaceans have been known to be herbivorous. So they think it was more things like mollusks, like shellfish, crustaceans, anything else that lives on the seafloor, like, and then sort of suction feeding or grazing along a muddy, shallow um, That's ocean floor. so many mollusks mm-hmm. to make 300 tons. Yeah, but if they're, moving, this... if they're moving really slow, then uh, they don't need as much. I guess so. Was this when mollusks were, like, huge? I was thinking that. Or is that a completely different? I don't know. Era? Probably. I don't know it seems either. Like a gigantic era. So, so maybe that's why their head has been found. It's just like this huge, suck, creepy suction cup thing to suck up the super giant mollusks. Maybe. Ooh, I don't know. Terrifying. So yeah, so much to learn, and I love that six-year-old Manny is so into these prehistoric whales. Good job, dude. I love it. Thanks, Manny. Our next question comes from Rowan. Rowan wants to know a lot of things and they are all very legit how do i work in marine biology things so rowan said i wanted to know if you have any access to marine biologists or retired marine biologists or basically any resources as to what my next steps should be or if you know a place that could direct me in that direction oh rowan yes we do uh wanted to know things about you know how marine biologists did in high school do you have to do well in high school to be successful short answer no it's totally fine (laughs) (laughs) we'll get there we'll get there you know what kind of classes do you take how do you get your degree how do you get a job how do you find work in the field that you want when did you get your scuba diving license really great in-depth questions and rowan oh boy howdy do we have a lot of resources for you most notably to Rowan and any of our listeners who are interested in working in the marine biology field. We have basically in every episode of this podcast when we have had researchers on, which is, I don't know, I went back through our whole catalog and it's like every fourth or fifth episode-ish, we had a guest researcher. It's not always in exactly that order, but if you take the grand scope of this is episode 63 of our podcast um a fifth or a sixth of them we've had researchers on and in each one of those episodes we ask them how they got started 
So that would be our first place to suggest is go back and listen to past episodes in our catalog here direct from the mouth experience of people doing the jobs that you hope to do one day and hear their stories. It's one of my favorite things to ask people in this field because um, as you also would have heard on our 13th episode, the story of us and how the three of us came to run this corner of the internet called whale tales where we just got to nerd out about cetaceans all the day long and and answer your questions on a podcast that's been going for however many years um you also know that for me in particular nicole i failed out of university i got kicked out of university and look at me now professor Um, which is why I laugh at the question of like, do you have to do well in high school? No, like, yes, do your best. Yes, study. Yes, education is important, clearly based on on what all three of us do. Um, and yes, I did eventually go back to university and I did eventually get a degree, but I never got a biology degree. And yet I can proudly introduce myself as a marine biologist amongst many other parts of my profession. So the... The short answer is go listen to other researchers we've interviewed and they will share their lived experiences of how they got to where they are. Their stories are all different. Yeah. All varied. There is no one set path, one size fits all approach to getting a job in any field, especially this field. Um, the last thing that Roland put in their email was, you know, I think I just need help in figuring out the next steps, like reaching out to someone in the field, talking, calling, emailing, texting, any kind of help would be incredible. And that's the advice that we always give at the end of the day is if you care about marine biology, if you care about anything, whatever it is that you care about, there are other people who care about that thing, who are doing the thing that you want to do find those people wherever you are if if they're local amazing go volunteer your time there is not a researcher on this planet earth who wouldn't love a volunteer free labor awesome someone to carry their pack in the field awesome someone who can input their data great i'm not saying there wouldn't be hoops to jump through in those cases almost exclusively there are (laughs) but the fact that so many scientists have social media now and that's a beautiful little corner of the internet where you can reach out to people who are studying the things that you're passionate about and say hey I think what you do is really amazing and I'd like to do it too just show your interest and I mean do it professionally for sure (laughs) but Show people you're interested, show people you're committed and passionate and see where that takes you. Anything the two of you wanted to add to that? Oh, I guess like the show notes of those episodes will probably also have links to either social media or websites or articles about from the people that we've had on the podcast. So um, yeah, might be a good place to start. We'll put some of these in the show notes, but also just if you look through our podcasts that have researchers in them, which are pretty usually have the title their name in the title uh we will have the their contact information that they gave us in there so even if it's just a twitter handle or whatever just start there and you know feel free to 
say that you found them on whale tales if you're if you're wanting an introduction i think i would feel comfortable mm-hmm. with anybody saying, oh definitely yeah, yeah. that sounds great yeah <laughs> yeah so thank you rowan and thanks everybody who wants to keep studying because i think that's also something we say in almost every episode it's like i wish we knew more yeah definitely okay on the same topic from ona tukin on instagram any advice for universities to learn about citations in master's degrees so we have a link here that we'll talk about in a second but we just want about best marine biology programs but we just want to preface that with of course that we are english speakers and this is a western centric list so this is by no means the list to end all lists this is just a list of western uh universities for that are primarily english um but still they're still in here and some of them are pretty good yeah i guess because they're on this list (laughs) uh this is from 2022 also oh so it's pretty up to date that's awesome yeah okay okay so we've got university of washington university of california san diego suborn university (laughs) that sounds fancy did not know they offered Marine biology degrees. Is it one of those things where you forget that France has a coastline except for when you're reading World War II books? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, University of Southampton in the UK. Oregon State, which is the university that one of our Krill people from World Krill Day goes to or studies at. And it's the university I most want to do my master's at if I ever do that, (laughs) which I probably won't. Um, Utrecht in the Netherlands, University of Bremen in Germany, University of Tasmania mm-hmm. in Australia, Colombia, University of Bergen in Norway, University of Miami, MIT, University of Western Brittany in France, um, California Institute of Technology, We've the, been Ocean, there. <laughs> the Ocean University of China, and the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and then a bunch more. There's like 50 on here. And none of the oh, there's oh, thirty five UBC. Good job, Sarah. Okay. Way to kill it. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I, yeah. So yeah, University of British Columbia and Dalhousie when Halifax are the I think only Canadian ones on the list, but that's okay. We are a small number of people, country. Uh, before we continue with the rest of the episode, we wanted to take a moment to tell you about how you can support the podcast and everything we do at Whale Tales. You can join us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash whaletales. You can join for a dollar a month at the porpoise level, $5 a month at the dolphin level, and $10 a month at the whale level. And each level comes with a variety of perks, including polls, thank you cards, access to extended interviews or extra stories that our guests share with us. You can produce your own fun flipper fact segment of the pod. So if you didn't get your episode, your mailbag episode question in, you can become a patron and then the whole fun flipper fact will be devoted to your question. And we also have two special Patreon only podcasts because we just love talking. <laughs> we have Journal Club for our dolphin and whale level patrons. And we also have a whale level patron exclusive podcast, which is called Whale Tales Watches, where we watch a thing or read a thing that's marine biology adjacent sometimes <laughs> and then we talk about it in our latest episode of whale tales watches we watched a really great movie Hooray! <laughs> Finally. our first actually great movie <laughs> for whale tales watches instead of just funny we watched star trek 4 the voyage home and 
It was awesome. I think our episode was pretty great too, but I just can't stop talking about how great that movie was. Thank you so much to our patrons. You are amazing. Agreed. If you aren't able to support us financially, there's still lots of things you can do to help us out. You can leave us a rating or a review on your podcast platform of choice, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, this will help other people find the podcast. And you can also just tell your Cetacean Science-y podcasty friends all about the podcast and everything we do at Whale Sales so that they can join in too. And then you can follow us on social media at whaletales underscore org and send us your feedback so that we can keep making the podcast even better. Okay, a few more questions for you. Our next one comes from Whale Maven on Instagram. And they say, I love stories about so-called wayward whales, like the gray whale recently spotted in Florida. These whales seem to have no boundaries and appetite and an appetite for adventure. Since whales generally have amazing navigational skills, it's easy to assume that wanderings outside their traditional range are deliberate. What's really going on? Are these the whales' intrepid adventures? Did they get clonked on the head and their navigational capabilities are damaged? Are they mad at their pod? Do they ever return to their home range? And like a lot of things in the world of cetaceans, uh, first of all, there's probably not one answer. But also, we don't always know. Sometimes animals are just exploring, and we don't know why. Uh, they, they're they just out there being animals, and we obviously can't fully understand what's going on in their brains, because they're so different than ours. Um, sometimes they, yeah, I'm sure they are lost. Um, you know, they're following a current that goes in a different place than they're expecting, or they're following a source of food, or they're following a sound that they think is something familiar so maybe they do have amazing navigational skills, but some some tool that they're using for navigation has changed or, you know, they just, yeah, get lost. Uh, maybe they're exploring a new source of food or a new habitat. And so individuals will like try out a new a new thing and see if it works. And so they're not really lost. They're just doing a little exploring experiment. Um, and yeah, maybe, maybe they are mad at their pod. <laughs> maybe they are... Um, just like going on an adventure and having having a wild time and they'll report back to their their whale compatriots um, next season. Who knows? It's a, it's a very interesting question and I think a lot of the time we never really get the final answer and in the case of whales that are more tracked and like identified, maybe we like see them somewhere strange and then a couple years later they pop up back in the normal place and we don't know how they got from A back to B. Yeah, I would say like with whales that we do know very well like there was some transients some bigs that were stuck in a lake mm -hmm. up north this summer and yeah. they got out with help yeah um not like slings help but just boat Co coaxing help, coaxing through not shallow coaxing water help. yeah yeah um and they got out yeah. and we don't really know why that was a thing that happened but on the other hand we've heard especially we i think in the last episode we had with ashley in this in the fall mm -hmm. um is that especially t uh t's young male t's juveniles they go off on their kind of teenage wanderings and which is which is different than this because they don't end up in weird spots usually yeah but we don't know what animals do but those ones we know that they come back we have no idea where they were yeah or what they were doing but just wandering around Getting their hormones sorted out, maybe. maybe. Who knows? Yeah, having teenage adventures. 
Yeah, they have to live with their mom for their entire life. It so. is fairly common, yeah, for like sub-adult males of all kinds of species to mm-hmm. sort of like sperm go whales exploring also. or even like outside stations of thinking like sea otters. So mm-hmm. yeah. like as the sea otter range is expanding throughout the West Coast um, over, you know, the last well century, but 40. Yeah. Um, since the reintroduction. Since the reintroduction, mm-hmm. especially um, like there's the concentrated populations of large groups of sea otters and then single or small groups of males will go and like try out in the summertime maybe or like a seasonal sort of experiment somewhere and sometimes it leads to the whole population expanding there and sometimes it doesn't our next question comes to us from esther and esther asked us a question about the recent study where researchers big quotation marks talked to a humpback whale so esther's question is do the scientists who talk to twain which is the humpback know what was said and also why was twain displaying signs of agitation excellent question also fascinating study and free yay so this was a really recently published article Uh, it was published in november of 2023 and there was a minor correction that was added in february so like a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> oh, goodness. And the entire article is free. Yay, free science. So we will include the article in the show notes if you want to go out and read it right now. But also, a little spoiler alert, we had pegged this for an upcoming journal club podcast. So we will do a Coles Notes answer to your question, Esther, today. And then if you'd like to dive deeper into the article with us, then join us for Journal Club because it was really fascinating. So the article was called Interactive Bioacoustic Playback as a Tool for Detecting and Exploring Non-Human Intelligence slash Conversing with an Alaskan Humpback Whale. Um, I really want to dive into the whole article because the article is amazing, but that would be a whole separate podcast and we don't have time for that. So the Coles notes are that this team of researchers were playing a contact call like sound known as a wump thump. There we go. That's my humpback whale example. I'm not good at humpback whale sounds. Sea lions, I got you all day. Humpbacks, no thank you. Um, and they were playing these sounds and were able to have a 20 minute, big quotes, conversation, which is defined as their sounds playing and the humpback reacting and vocalizing. And then them playing sounds, the researchers playing sounds, and the humpback changing its vocalizations. So that's, we've been really, really clear about how we're defining conversation. Yeah. I like they use the term acoustic turn taking. Yes. (laughs) I love it. Very like close encounters. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, This happened in Southeast Alaska. And so we're talking about sort of the North Pacific ish humpback population here. And the short answer to your question, Esther, is no, they don't know what was said. So even the wump thump itself isn't perfectly understood. It's called a contact call. But if you've listened to our, we've had many different episodes on different cetacean vocalizations, contact call specifically to beluga whales is like a term with a really clear Dr. Valeria Vaguero was on talking about contact calls. It's a really clear, really defined sound that is played, sorry, not played, made by Boluca whales um, that has like a social 
connection between mothers and their calves. In humpbacks, it's not as well understood. So it doesn't have, it's hard for me because I first heard the term contact call with belugas. So I'm like, oh, it mm-hmm. means this. Nope, it doesn't mean that in humpbacks. It means whales. that in belugas. It means that in belugas. And in humpbacks, it's just, uh, it's that kind of call. It's that one thump call. And they know that Twain, the humpback, made similar style calls but that doesn't mean we know what twain was saying or even that twain knows what the researchers were saying Mm -hmm. yeah because we just don't understand their vocalizations and we don't understand what they mean and we don't understand if they have the same concept of language that we do because oh is that confusing (laughs) Yeah. Mm. Um, so the what the researchers were doing is exactly what what you said, Sarah, with that term. It's like acoustic turn taking. I make a sound, you make a sound. I make a sound, you make a different sound. Ooh. And it was really cool. It was very very cool. Uh, but we don't know enough about it. So that's what we're gonna leave you with right now. You can everybody who's listening to us can read the whole article if they want to or we will also have in the show notes an article to the earth.com sort of more media style summary of the experience which is a shorter read but i would say if you got the time for the whole article it's fascinating and does have an alien component i'll leave it at that because <laughs> i really want people to read the article it's awesome okay okay next question from empty drone on instagram who recently just sent us a amazing story featuring drone videos of etps because they were everywhere this winter the etps not empty drone um anyway. i don't know what etp means the orcas Eastern Tropical Pacific. Orcas. Oh, thank you. I needed some context. Yes, sir. <laughs> anyway, can whales hear drone noise? I stay 20 to 50 feet above and zoom in to not to affect wildlife. Thank you for doing that. Um, this is a really interesting debate, as is that comes with new technology all the time, of what to do with this. So um, there is some studies going on. There's some implications. Um so far, there's one paper that says so far, no behavioral reactions towards UAVs have been recorded for marine mammals underwater. Hence, the acoustic effect on marine mammals in water, even when flying less than 10 meters above the animals, is likely to be absent or small and far less than of conventional aircraft. So there's also someone who says that I think an above water transmission would bounce a lot easier off of a water surface. I would hazard a guess that the low powered ultrasonics could not be heard underwater from a low height absolutely happy to be proved incorrect so all of these of course there's one that was a study and the other ones were conversations on the internet of people's personal observations but of course people who are out there can see what's been happening and we don't know we don't know what's happening um similar to all sorts of things it's an ongoing um concern and it's just important to read the laws what's legal for your area for your animal and also for your drone and also what permits are required to be flying a drone. Um, and also to remember that, again, when you see stuff like what we said with empty drone who zooms in, when you see other footage of like um, Ocean Alliance and Snotbot comes to mind, 
they are allowed to fly drones directly over whales to collect snot. That is their science. That is their permits. They are allowed to be doing this for science. It's very similar to when you see scientific research boats near whales as opposed to obeying the uh, whale watching guidelines. That's um, They have different permits. They've gone through different things. And they are allowed to be doing this because of their research. So that's a very similar thing to keep in mind is that uh, just because you've seen footage or just because you've seen somebody doing it does not mean it's correct, does not mean it's causing harm. We don't know what it's causing harm, what's causing harm, especially with drones. So it's just to be safe for your drone and for the whale and for anybody, any other animals in the ocean, of course, as well. Yeah. And just because people aren't noticing reactions doesn't mean there aren't implications. Yeah, correct. And also just because the there's no underwater noise, whales yeah. spend time above water also. Yes. So whales spend time above water. And of course, other animals also spend time above water. Yeah. So the, it is creating noise in an environment. And that's just a thing to keep in mind when you're using something, anything around wildlife. Indeed. Indeed. Okay. I think it's time for our last question. Um, this last one comes from Liz on TikTok, who wonders, can whales sing off key or be tone deaf like some humans? And it's surprisingly hard to answer this question. Right? I was trying to come up with an answer when she asked it. And I was like, I don't know how to answer this. <laughs> I came at this. I just want to say, I because we've talked in the past, I think in previous mail- yeah. mailbags, about how sometimes the the google algorithm mm. of my computer is very attuned to things <laughs> to how the things we and google sometimes that's really helpful and sometimes it's not so yeah. i just want to say when we talk about how surprisingly hard it is to answer this question i tried answering this question or researching this question from three different computers <laughs> two of which i do not routinely use to try and search for whale tails things and also my own phone and my husband's phone, who never searches for whale stuff. And it blew my mind <laughs> that there's so little to such a really, like, fascinating question. Yeah. yeah. So, like, humpback songs are incredibly well studied. Um, and so humpback's frequency range or pitch can fluctuate anywhere from 20 hertz to 24,000 hertz. But... As far as anyone can tell and talk about in ways that Nicole was able to research, it seems like if they are off key, it's like intentional because it's not off key. They're evolving their song. And that's sort of like the culture of humpbacks. Um, Again, way more that we could go into because humpback humpback vocals are absolutely fascinating. And we did a whole episode. We did do a whole episode. Um, Amazing. And we could probably do a whole much more um yeah mm-hmm. yeah so did find a really amazing study on blue whale vocalizations so um scientists scientists at san francisco state university studied over four thousand blue whale songs off the coast of california so in a relatively small geographical area especially you know for blue whales and they found that all of these whales produce a certain call at the exact same pitch of 16.02 hertz um hmm. So that's very low. It's four octaves below middle C. So like way down oh, the yeah. end of the piano, left end of the piano. And remarkably is that all these whales are singing at the same pitch from they only found a variation by half a percent versus hmm. 
the difference if the, between that C and the C sharp is 6%. This is crazy, right? Yeah. So, so crazy. basically, blue whales are not off key or tone deaf. They are very good at matching pitch. Can somebody make us a uh, graphic of blue whales with like pitch perfect yes, jackets please. on or something? And like yes, a little pitch please. whistle? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. This was my favorite fact that I That's learned. That's really cool. Yeah. I, I think the so thing cool. that really hung me up is like, like humpbacks sing but like we call it a song so that's anthropomorphizing in yeah. general but also and calling things off key is also like yeah. i know like music exists as regardless of whether or not we exist but like it's uh, is it off key to us is it off key just because it's not c kind of thing like how do you define off key for an a non-humanoid species as well. Yeah, that's why the humpback thing is so complicated because they they are evolving their songs, whereas this blue whale study that they there's such cohesion around this single pitch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's yeah. kind of the thing of like that's the question, and also like they hear differently. Yeah. So is it off key to them? If yeah, it's off key to us, or what's their like, what is it? What's their like granularity of being able to pick up different pitches? Yeah. yeah. Who yeah, knows? it's such a fascinating thing, but also, and then like, but with this blue whale thing coming through, that just happens to be so exact and so similar to like so like mappable on our scale of music is also like that's yeah. weird. Well, I think yeah, just... the the four octaves below middle C is more of like a comparison so that we know how low it is, not like an action. It's not that's not actually the pitch. No, and it's similar to I think someone actually wrote out a whale a humpback song on yeah. People have, music yeah, transcribed them. It's crazy. Transcribed them, yeah. It's yeah. really cool. Anyway, it's fascinating. Um, but now I'm just thinking about Blue Whales winning the acapella. <laughs> the, the, sing, the, no, what's it called? Uh, I don't know, but they were this close to regionals. <laughs> it's a joke for some people. And anyway, I thought this was regionals. And I'm sorry. This is devolving rapidly, so we're going to move this along. We have a special whale tell this month. We don't usually do a whale tell in February, but um, spoiler alert for later in this year, we have some exciting stories coming up. So our whale tell this month comes from Tom from Whalewise in Iceland slash Ireland. They are based in Ireland, um, but they do their field research in Iceland, which is confusing to me. And, but, Those two words um, look very similar. Yes. yes. Uh, Tom has an amazing story uh, during, I think, their last field season um, when, they, when they work with drones, actually. Ooh. Hi, everyone. And it's great to be on the podcast. Uh, my name is Tom and I'm part of a small charity called Whalewise. We're officially registered in the UK, but we do a lot of our work in Iceland and we are a whale conservation charity. So we use scientific research and public engagement to try and improve the conservation and welfare of marine mammals in the wild. And so when we're doing our research, we normally study the interactions between whale populations and human activity. And for the last couple of years, we've been focused in the northwest of Iceland in an area called the West Fjords. And we're very lucky. It's this beautiful area of these dramatic fjords and lots of whales. Um, And we've been focusing on a project called Scars from Above, where we've been using drones. We've been flying drones 
primarily from land, which is quite unusual and really good for us. Um, flying drones from land over humpback whales to collect aerial videos and images so that we can look at scars that relate to entanglement in fishing gear and we can also look at their health and body condition. This story is from the 2023 field season and this was back in June and the reason that I wanted to share this story, I think a lot of whale people are going to be familiar with this and also a lot of not whale people, is that when it comes to whales, when it comes to wildlife generally, things are not always what they seem and I think that can make things so exciting because you never know what you're going to see and even if you think you know what you can see, actually it can still throw up some pretty big surprises. So um, myself and my colleague Alyssa, we had gone out for the afternoon and we were looking for whales and we were really lucky. It was a really rare Icelandic day where it was beautifully calm, it was sunny, it was the absolute perfect conditions that you wanted for droning. Now we're quite lucky where we are um, because we actually do a lot of our droning from our accommodation. So we live in this gorgeous cabin right on the coast, uh, right at the mouth of this really long, quite narrow fjord called Stengrimsjörder. And so basically we are able to step outside of our cabin and look for whales because a lot of the time whales are there. And so this time we stepped out and luckily we were able to see a couple of whales. But what was a bit, I guess, frustrating, but also really magical about this day is the whales were actually having a bit of a chill day. And so what I mean by this is they were logging a lot. Uh, basically, logging is a very simple activity we see from whales when they're snoozing or when they're sleeping or when they're just generally resting. And so logging comes from the fact that whales are lying very still at the surface with just a small part of their body showing above the water surface. And they literally look like a log. When you see them from the water, from above the water, they literally look like a log. They're not moving, they're motionless. They'll breathe about once every minute and then their blowhole will come above. But usually their blowholes are uh, just under the water and you see their dorsal fin just above. Um, and it's a very peaceful thing to see. But yeah, so that's the behaviour that we call logging. It's basically surface resting behaviour. And it meant that you needed to look really, really hard to tell whether a whale was actually a whale or whether it was something like a log because you could just see a tiny bit of its dorsal fin sticking out at the surface and then sometimes um, you could see them blowing but it was only just visible so you needed to be really vigilant even to see a whale in the first place and then you needed to try and direct the drone operator over the whale and so it was quite tricky and so these were all all humpback whales. Uh, humpbacks are what we usually study and so we were confident of that. We were like okay these are all humpbacks, this is pretty much all we see in the fjord apart from the odd minke whale but they're quite obvious because of their big dorsal fin and so humpback whales are our target species so we went to drone over all the whales that we could. And so we saw this one shape in the distance and I'd say it was about two kilometres away which actually isn't that far away for us when we're droning, they can be further um, and we thought gosh is that a whale? You could just see the tiniest of slivers. And we could see it moving and then we could see it blow a tiny bit. So we were like, okay, it is a whale. And the reason we could only see them blow a tiny bit is because of the lighting. Um, maybe if you worked a lot with whales, you'd be familiar with this. But even though, for example, with humpback whales, sometimes they blow really clearly and you can see this very clear cloud. Sometimes the light just does funny things and you can barely see them blowing. And you kind of don't really believe yourself, but it's true. You can hardly see them blowing. So anyway, um, we got the drone up in the air and I was the drone operator this time. 
And we went to fly over the whale and we were struggling to find it because it was so invisible. The tiny little sliver wasn't really moving at all. And then I could just see it in the distance and I didn't want to lose it. So I was flying the drone as quickly as possible. Not when we were over the whale, but just to get to the whale. And so the whale kind of then disappeared a tiny bit. The sliver disappeared and we were like, damn it, we lost the whale. So we waited about 30 seconds. And then in the drone's camera, so we were using a DJI Mavic 3, um, I saw that sliver come up a tiny bit again. And I thought, okay, the whale's there. I'm gonna fly towards it. And then we were just about to get over the whale and I was just ready to fly um, over the humpback to get the image. And I thought, you know what? That whale's really weird. It doesn't look black under the surface with these like shining white pecs it looks kind of like a turquoise blue. And I was like, huh, that's really funny. That's a very unusual color for a humpback whale because they're never colored that way. And so I got a bit closer and it was sunny so you could see it really clearly. And I got right over the whale and I thought, oh my goodness, I'm flying over a blue whale. And so it was this huge animal and it was this turquoise blue. And if you've ever been lucky enough to see a blue whale, which uh, we have on the team, we're very lucky. You have these incredible leopard spot patterns. And we were actually flying over a blue whale and we were so confident that it was gonna be a humpback just because it's humpbacks that you see in the fjord. It's extremely, extremely rare to see a blue whale in the fjord um, and in this part of North Iceland generally. And so suddenly I found myself flying over a blue whale. I got fairly nervous, but it was still useful data for us to get. And so we flew over the blue whale. It kind of stayed there for a few seconds and then it just started traveling slowly. Um, fortunately, it seemed very unconcerned about the drone, which we were very happy about. And so, and that was, that was the memory, to be honest. And it was just an incredible day because there were quite a few humpbacks around, just chilling, just sleeping. And this blue whale had just, apparently decided, you know what, I'm gonna go into that fjord and I'm just gonna snooze for a little bit and I'm just gonna chill. Um, I just found that a very special moment that we could have chosen not to fly over that whale. We might have not had the drone and if we didn't have the drone, we would have certainly thought it was a humpback. And it just shows that these giant animals can often just come and go pretty much unnoticed. And you might assume it's one animal, but actually it can be something very different. And in, in this case, it was a very endangered and very special blue whale. Um, every whale is special, but it's, it's, it's nice. It's nice to have a surprise and nice to have something unusual. Um, so anyway, so that was the story. Um, very fortunate. And then we spent the rest of the season, the next couple of months, still studying these whales, um, flying over them in these narrow fjords, driving around, looking for as many whales as we could find. Um, and that's it. So yeah, hope you enjoyed the story. And if you ever want to learn more about our work, you're welcome to get in touch with Whalewise. And yeah, nice to, nice to chat to you all. Oh, so cool. So good. So amazing. I love their work and I can't wait to hear more from them hopefully soon. And we do actually have another story from Jess from Whalewise from uh, that will be up on our Patreon this month. Ooh, uh, you can bonus. hear this at the $1 level or any level above that. Uh, another great story from one of their uh, field research uh, trips and just one of those ones that you're just like, oh, what if I was 26 and was in the field again? Oh, that <laughs> Amazing. So that brings us to the end of yet another 
mailbag episode or any episode. And that's when we want to hear from you because we love your feedback. So please visit our website, whale-tales.org and find links to all of our social media handles. You're already doing that because we got so many questions in so many places. But now do it again and drop us a line and let us know what you thought. Nicole doesn't know about any social media except no, I for don't. Instagram, so this is why she's so excited about it. So There's so many social medias now. Yeah, um, I can't. I don't. I don't know, and I probably will never know. That's not my part of the job, but I'm fascinated. Correct. Uh, you can also head to our website to subscribe to the podcast, learn about supporting us, and becoming a patron, and check out over 1,350 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories told you i've been busy i know it's amazing so that's whale-tales.org tales like the stories not tales like the animal and if you've seen a cetacean we would love to add your story to our library like actually love it uh you can click the share link on our website you can contact us on social media or you can email us a voice memo and tell us all about your incredible cetacean encounter will you be our 1400th story <gasps> maybe maybe uh, finally, we want to acknowledge that we recorded today's episode on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples and the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, as well as the homelands of the Tawasan First Nation. Thank you all so much. We hope you have a whaley great day.